0: When Chelsea asked you to pray earlier, she meant for me, because when she said we are going to the beach to see her mom, she meant her and Benjamin. And so the rest of, of my gaggle will be with, with me for two days. So going to be in survival mode there. So as you might have noticed, if you opened your insert, we are not in the book of Acts this morning. That's a bit of a surprise because it's our pattern here to walk consecutively through books of the Bible, and we almost never divert from it. We're pretty religious, for lack of a better term, about it. Uh, But this week had a bunch of questions on the topic of church discipline, and so I thought, you know, since this has been a part of our Constitution since 2016, since it's part of our membership covenant, I should probably do a better job teaching about it. And so uh, this is my attempt to do that this morning. And so, um, with that word, if you were curious, I was just trying to answer questions about why we weren't in Acts anymore. Uh, I also want to let you know, if you have more questions, uh, we will talk about the sermon in Sunday school next week, and then I'll take questions Wednesday night in the Parsonage uh, during the Bible study hour at seven o'clock. I'll be happy to to talk with it, talk with you about it. And so that was the preface, and now will come my introduction. On Easter weekend not too long ago, popular New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof wrote a column entitled, President Carter, Am I a Christian? This is what he said to President Carter. What about someone like me, whose faith is in the Sermon on the Mount, who aspires to follow Jesus' teachings, but is skeptical that he was born of a virgin, walked on water, multiplied fishes, and had a physical resurrection. Am I a Christian, President Carter? President Carter responded, "I don't judge if someone else is a Christian." Jesus said, "Judge not." And so ultimately, President Carter doesn't help him answer the question. This wasn't the first time Christoph had asked the question, however. He asked it previously around Christmas time to theologian Timothy Keller. This is how he posed the question to Keller. So where does that leave people like me? Am I a Christian, a Jesus follower, a secular Christian? Can I be a Christian while denying the resurrection? Keller responded, I wouldn't draw any conclusion about an individual without talking to him or her at length. But in general, if you don't accept the resurrection or other foundational beliefs as outlined in the Apostles' Creed, I'd say you're outside the boundary of Christianity. So basically, Keller tells Mr. Christoph if you don't believe in the incarnation of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Well, what do you think? Is Mr. Christoph a Christian? How can he, or any of us for that matter, know that we are Christians? And who has the authority to answer such a question? The answer, according to the scripture, is the church. The local church is the authority Jesus established on earth to affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. It is the embassy of Jesus' kingdom That has been authorized to recognize genuine citizens of the kingdom and to remove non citizens. It's important to note, though, that the church never makes someone a Christian or not a Christian, it rather affirms or denies. Healthy local churches affirm or deny membership based on someone's repentant belief in the gospel. But what I hope to show you this morning from Matthew 16 and 18 is that it's a church's responsibility to receive true disciples, pursue straying disciples, remove false disciples, and restore repenting disciples. The exhortation is to be a faithful practicer of church discipline. Your outline is a little bit more detailed than it usually is. Um, But you can see the three main questions we're trying to answer this morning. Where does a church get its authority from? How does a church use this authority? And then why don't churches practice church discipline? We'll try to answer those questions uh, to the best of our ability. But first, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together around your word, and to submit ourselves to it. We thank you that you are infinitely gracious and infinitely kind, that each one of us in this room is far from perfect. Each one of us in this room has sinned this week. Each one of us in this room has has hurt someone else. And still we come here together repentant, covered by the blood of Christ, that binds us all together. We thank you that Jesus died for sinners like us. That he died for all who will come to him in faith. And Lord, we come to him in faith this morning, asking that we might hear and understand. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us illumination as we learn from the scriptures. We pray that your voice would be heard loud and clear. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start in Matthew 16 and in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, or hell, will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. There's a whole lot in this passage, but our purpose this morning is to kind of hone in on this idea of authority. And in order to do that, we have to ask our first question. What are these keys that Jesus is handing to Peter? It's not as if Jesus has a giant like key ring with a bunch of different keys on it, and he's physically handing it to Peter here. This is, this is a metaphor. We have to say, well, what does this metaphor point us to? And keys in the ancient world, much like our own world, pointed to or symbolized authority. And so this is really simple if you just think about how keys function in your life. You have a key to your house, and that key allows you to enter in through your door or lock your door. If somebody is trusted by you, you can give them a key to your home. You have authority over your place. The keys simply represent an authority that is given by Jesus To Peter, and as well, argue like good congregationalists, to all who like Peter are true disciples. There's authority that's being passed, and and we see as, as we read on it's an authority to bind and loose, to affirm or deny. So the next question, which I started to answer, is who has this authority? Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, the answer is the Pope. That, that Peter specifically had these keys and had this authority. And it there was through apostolic dissension, it's come all the way down. And the Pope has the authority of the keys in his hands. And he exercises that authority over the whole church. And different denominations have, have different um, ideas about who holds the keys. But we are Baptists. And Baptists and other Congregationalists argue that the whole church... That's each church member, that's each of you, gathers together and exercises the power of these keys. Exercises the authority that's being given to Peter here. The authority that Jesus gives to Peter is not only for him, but for all who like him rightly confess Jesus and repentantly follow Jesus together. And so that's why Baptist churches are autonomous, Right? There's no pope or no outside governing body that makes decisions about who belongs to our church or who our pastor is. We believe that that authority is vested within the congregation, the authority to bind and loose. You say, well, what's the purpose of this authority, this binding and this loosing, this affirming someone as a Christian or, or denying, as we'll see, that they're a Christian? Well, let me back up because I didn't, I didn't put the keys in Peter in our hands. How do the keys get from Peter's hands to our hands, right? And that's where we're going to go to Matthew 18. In the context of Matthew 18, there's a brother who's caught in sin. And there, Jesus is saying, this is how you bring your brother to repentance. He's walking through the process. And you'll notice in verse 17, he says, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. Notice who they're telling. They're telling the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, and notice the language, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. And so, In Matthew 16, we have this idea of the keys and this authority, this binding and loosing introduced. And then in Matthew 18, we have the keys in action. Only they're not in the hands of Peter anymore, but of the church. And so what what we're recognizing is that the authority to steward the keys isn't based on Peter's position as an apostle, but based upon his confession of Jesus as the Christ. Peter believes rightly about Jesus, and so Jesus says to Peter, you are a right confessor. These are the keys of the kingdom. You are now able to identify others that rightly believe in me, who have rightly identified me for who I am, the Messiah. And now we see that this authority extends to other Christians. Others who have rightly believed are able to bind and Loose, affirm, and deny. The church is exercising the keys in Matthew 18. So what what is the purpose of this authority? Why the the binding and loosing? Why is it important to make a distinction between uh, who is in the people of God, who who is uh, walking with Jesus, and who is not? Well, because Jesus wants us to make a distinction. The authority of the keys is about making plain who belongs to Jesus, who is rightly following Jesus as a true disciple, and who is not. God has always made a distinction between those who are in him and are part of his people and are living holy lives, and those who are not. Right? He calls out Israel to be his holy people. And those who are not in Israel are not part of the people of God. In the New Testament, we are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that we might declare the marvelous excellencies of Christ. In 1 Peter 2.9. See, the, the church is to be a holy people. To be full of, of Christians. So that God is rightly represented to the world. So that when somebody looks at the local church, they see an authentic painting of God's love and of his holiness rather than a forgery. You see, Jesus is telling the church here in Matthew 18 to make a distinction between those who are following him as disciples and those who are not. So the purpose of the keys is to set the boundary line between who is living in obedience to Jesus and who is not. It's about affirming someone believes rightly and is repentantly following Jesus. And then church members together are to responsibly steward this authority. Means when you become part of a Baptist church or congregational church, one of the things we're saying to you is here are some house keys. You have believed rightly that Jesus was God in the flesh, born of a virgin. Lived a perfect and substitutionary life. Died a substitutionary death in the place of all who would repent of sin and trust in him. Rose from the dead. Is ruling and reigning from heaven and will return to make all things true. You have rightly believed the gospel. You know Jesus. And your life is consistent with that. You've turned from your sins. You've been born again. You've been changed and so now your life is different and you are no longer walking in the darkness. You are walking in the light. You are a Christian and now you get to steward this wonderful authority together with us of helping us to identify other Christians and welcoming them into our fellowship. That's the first use of this authority. Receiving true disciples. Receiving true disciples. This is simply an implication of removing what you see in Matthew 18. The ability to remove and set the boundaries implies the ability to welcome in. So that's one of the first things is receiving true disciples. So you may go, well, how does, this, what does, that, play out? How does that play out in our church? Well, it looks this way. The church wants to make sure that we only welcome Christians into our fellowship rather than non-Christians. And so let's say uh, Mr. Christoph, from our introduction, comes to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church and expresses his desire to join with us in fellowship. And so uh, in his interview, his membership interview with the elders, he says to us, the same as he did to Dr. Keller, uh, you know, Justin, Mike, David, uh, I, I think I'm a Christian, but I don't, I really just believe in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, at that point, we're, we're not going to recommend him for membership. And if we did, and we, we, we came before the membership and said, here's Mr. Christoph, he uh, believes in the Sermon on the Mount, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. It would be your responsibility to vote no. It's our responsibility to make a distinction between who is believing in Jesus rightly and repentantly following him and who is not. Or or let's do another one. Let's say a a woman comes, she wants to join. She is a top-notch theologian. Just really, she can answer any theological question you ask her. But in the course of her interview, she uh, lets out, I also am a serial adulterer. I I love to have affairs, and I I don't plan on stopping. It's really, uh, I have peace about it. I prayed, and I know that it's right in my heart. We're going to say, um, no, your life is inconsistent with the life of a follower of Jesus. Because true disciples, they don't just say they believe in Jesus, they follow Jesus. Or maybe we have a, a couple that, that comes, they're nice, they move in the area, they say, uh, we, we want to join, but we, in the fall, we really get into NFL football and so we tailgate and, uh, and the rest of the year we like to go to brunch on Sundays. And so don't expect to see us except for Christmas and Easter. Maybe maybe not even then because we might have something else come up. But at that point we're going to say, brother, sister, we believe that gathering together is, is a basic Christian responsibility. The, the word for church in the New Testament is, is ekklesia. It means to gather, to assemble. If you're not gathering, why would you want to be part of the church? not being obedient to Jesus in this. You can't, no, we can't welcome you into membership. We we can't affirm that you're following Jesus because your life denies it. That process, those judgments that we are making, we are called to make. We've been given that authority. It would be wrong of us to do as President Carter did Shrug his shoulders. Well, Jesus said to judge not. So come on in. Well, No, Jesus didn't say, he did say judge not, but then he kept talking about how to make a right and gracious judgment. He said, take the plank out of your own eye, and then what did he say to do? Remove the speck from your brother's eye. The point of that passage that President Carter was quoting is not to say, don't judge about anything ever. No, the point of the passage is to say, judge wisely. Judge graciously. Judge in a way that you would want someone else to make judgments about you. Judge kindly. Yes, take the plank out of your eye so that you might perform whatever eye surgery is necessary on your brother or sister. No, we're we're making a judgment about who is rightly professing Christ and who is following him repentantly as a disciple. So let me give you a positive example. Uh, this past Wednesday, uh, we voted into membership uh, Rick and Wendy Pointer and Dennis and Terry. I don't think I told you guys that we approved you yet. But. Uh, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks, Kim. But we interviewed them and, and we said, wow, those are some great stories. Uh, these are great testimonies. I'm so glad that God has saved you. And we, we brought them before the membership. They gave you a little biographical sketch, the elders did, and we said, we recommend them for membership. And when we said, all in favor, and you said, I, there was this stewardship of this authority. We were judging them to be right professors of Christ, believing the gospel rightly, and repentantly living. Not perfect living. They're sinners. I haven't been around them that long, but I'm sure they sin. But they're repentant. They, they're the trajectory of their life, they, they are following Jesus. And I'm confident that if one of them sinned against me, and I went to them right now, and I said, um, you know, Rick, it really hurt me when, you know, whatever, that he would quickly repent. Because I believe them to be Christians. And this is what Christians do. They repent. The church has to make judgments about who a Christian is. Not just on the front end when they come in the door as members. But on the back end. If they begin to disqualify themselves by denying Jesus by virtue of what they start to believe or stop to believe, or by virtue of their lives. If somebody is a member of our church and saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I'm not going to do what Jesus says, well, that's as disqualifying as it would be if we were welcoming a new member. And I was interviewing them in my office, and I said, Hey, do you believe in Jesus? He said, Yeah. But I'm not going to do what he says. I'm going to do what I want when it comes to my sexuality. I'm going to do what I want when it comes to my Sunday mornings. And so the same thing that would disqualify someone from membership on the front end would disqualify them on the back end. But what about in, the, in between here? What do we do when we welcome someone into membership and they're caught in sin? And they, they stray away from Christ-like living? Well, Jesus tells us here in Matthew 18, and we're just going to focus on verses 15 through 22, but I want to alert you to the context. Right before this, there's this wonderful parable that most all of us are familiar with, where the sheep goes astray, and the shepherd leaves the 99. He gets the sheep. He puts it on his shoulders, and he comes back, and there is restoration and rejoicing. Glory. And then Jesus gives us This word, in the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that any one of these little ones, that refers to disciples, going way back to the beginning of the chapter, should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And so you see the connection. The way that we go after wayward sheep and work towards restoration, that's the goal of what we call church discipline. Uh, my old pastor used to call it spiritual rescue, right? The way that we go about spiritual rescue, the way we go about church discipline when somebody's caught in sin, the way we go about bringing home the straying sheep is by doing what Jesus says here. And Step one, he lies out four steps. for. Step one, pursue the stray disciple. Correct the sin, right? He says, your brother sins against you. Go to him, correct him. If he listens to you, you've won your brother no problem. This happens all the time, informally. It should be happening all the time. It happens in my home all the time, right? Justin, you were a little sinfully angry with the boys there. I know, shut up. Uh, Justin, you were a little angry with me. I know, I know, I know. But that's, that's happening. And, uh, and I'm repenting. Not rest- re- being restored. Church discipline is formative, where we just practically teach and learn and say that's where I'm going to obey. It's going to form us into Christ-likeness. And it's punitive. It's corrective. When I do something wrong and a brother or sister sees me doing something wrong, they correct me. This isn't limited just to when you're sinned against, right? The gentleman in 1 Corinthians 5 who is sleeping with his stepmother is not sinning directly against the church. But Paul still says, you as a church are responsible to hold him accountable. This is not Christ-like living. Remove him. Be like, if I went, well, I can't correct them because they're not sinning against me directly. It would be like if David was a bank robber, and we all knew it. And I knew it. And everybody knew he's a member of my church. But Friday nights, you could find David robbing banks, passionate about it. And I go, Well, I know this is sin, but I'm not gonna correct it, because after all, it's it's not against me directly. No, I'm to correct that sin. Galatians six one tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that's you who have the Holy Spirit, that's you who would call yourself a Christian, you who are a disciple, restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. It's our responsibility to love one another by correcting one another. We want to be a people who will correct one another when we're caught in sin and who invite correction. I mean, you, have you ever got food stuck in your teeth? Right? You went out to lunch or maybe in the kale's popular, you had a, like a kale on your sandwich somehow in the morning. You go about your day, you're seeing people, you're smiling and shaking hands. You get home and you look in the mirror and there's just like a whole head of lettuce between your teeth. And you're like, <sighs> Why didn't somebody tell me I had food in my teeth? I mean, I looked like an idiot all day. And your wife pipes up, how's that different from any other day? Well, no, you want want somebody to tell you if there's food stuck in your teeth, right? Likewise, if you are caught in sin, you want someone to tell you. Because if you're a true disciple, you want to be more like Jesus. You want to repent and be more like Jesus. So as Christians, we, we do this service to one another. We have covenant together to hold one another accountable to Christ-like living, to exhort one another towards good deeds and love, to encourage one another in the gospel, to say, keep following Jesus. Whoa, whoa, brother, you've gotten off the path. Come back over here. Keep following Jesus. Because persistence in sin, persistence in sin denies your profession of faith. Jesus says, repent and follow me. And if we refuse to repent, that is a rejection of Jesus. Jesus continues, In verse 16, But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony, he's quoting Deuteronomy here, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. This just makes sense, right? You take a couple other brothers with you to say, this isn't isn't that Jim just doesn't like you. This is that you're actually caught in sin. And all of us are here to verify it. You're in sin. We want to make plain that you need to repent. This is serious. There's three of us here now, maybe more. Turn from your sin. And Jesus says, if that doesn't work, tell the church. Verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, this is step three. Tell the church, the assembly, At this point in the process, what it would look like here, typically, is uh, your elders would come at a members meeting and say, Jane or Jill is caught in this particular sin. Please pursue them. Write letters, send text messages, call them, go and visit them. Do whatever it takes. Facebook posts. Exhort them, encourage them, tell them, you are not living in a way that is consistent with your profession of faith. You are denying your profession of faith by your discipleship. You are proving yourself not to be a disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of your sin. Repent and follow Jesus. Keep following him. Because if you don't, you might be in danger of hell. If your brother or sister doesn't pay attention to the church, verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. That doesn't sound too bad, right? Jesus hangs out with Gentiles and tax collectors. He's really nice to them. But That's not the point here. Remember Matthew writes to a Jewish audience Gentiles and tax collectors were distinct from Jews in very negative ways. The folks to whom Jesus is speaking understand that to treat someone like a tax collector or a Gentile is to treat them as someone who is outside of the household of God. See, Jesus wants the church to make clear that those who do not bear the fruit of repentance should be excluded from his people lest his people bear false witness about him. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is faith-filled repentance. The difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is that a true Christian follows Jesus. The difference between a true disciple and a false disciple is that a false disciple will refuse to repent and will refuse to follow Jesus. Jesus just makes it plain that those who do not bear the fruit of repentance do not abide in him. He says that in John 14, 15. And he says it in Matthew 7, verses 17 to 23. In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So who is it that enters the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? Do miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You cannot have your sin and Jesus too. You cannot bear the name of Christian while clinging to your sin. You cannot persist in sinful rebellion against God if you have been crucified with Christ and now live by faith. A tree is recognized by its fruit, and true disciples are recognized by their repentance and their continued following of Jesus. Therefore, if someone persistently rejects Jesus, a refusal to repent is a rejection of Jesus. If someone rejects Jesus, it is the church's responsibility, with that authority, to make plain to them that they're rejecting Jesus by removing them from membership, by saying, You are not part of the people of God because you have chosen to identify with your sin rather than with Jesus Christ. We can't vouch for it. I want to be clear on on this point. The church's authority is decorative, not creative. What that means is we affirm someone's salvation or we might deny it, but we don't cause it. You see what I'm saying here? So if, because churches can be wrong. We could could be wrong. We, We try not to be. We try to make really good judgments, right judgments according to the scripture, but we could be wrong. God knows and God always gets it right. A church doesn't ever make someone a Christian. A church doesn't ever give someone salvation and a church can't take someone's salvation away. That's not what we're called to do here. We're called to gather all the evidence, Say, this is what a Christian looks like. A Christian tree should bear Christian fruit. And affirm that. Christian. And then if at some point that a apparent Christian tree becomes filled with false fruit, then we say, that's, that's not a Christian tree. It's a little bit, uh, it's bad to use things you didn't think about ahead of time, but I'm going to try. Did you guys ever know how cashews grow? Listen, Google this when you get home, your mind is going to be blown. It'll make you appreciate cashews. I I don't know why this popped into my head. Uh, (laughs) So you know how little a cashew nut is, right? So up underneath of it, this giant apple-like structure, almost like a mix between a pepper and an apple, grows down. And if you're just looking at it on a tree, you would think nothing of the part part that's actually the cashew. You would think, that fruit is delicious. I'm going to go get some. But in fact, it tastes absolutely terrible. And there's actually a poisonous chemical that surrounds the cashew that can be really deadly. And so how people figured out that you could eat cashews, I don't know. But the cashew fruit is ultimately, ultimately, is actually called false fruit. And so sometimes it's possible for us to receive members into our midst that have been bearing false fruit. They weren't truly rooted in Christ and bearing the fruit of a Christian and and genuine repentance. But they had things that that made them look like they were bearing fruit. Made them look alive. Maybe like a Christmas tree, right? You put a Christmas tree in your house, and what do we do? We decorate, put bulbs on it, and, and, and with the pearls, strings of pearls, and, and lights. It kind of it makes it look like it's alive. But dress that thing up as much as you want, it's dead. Likewise, when there are people who do have no Christian fruit or they are showing evidence of deadness, that's what unrepentance is, then we need to make that clear to them. Not because we're mean, not because we want to, but because we must. Because this is what Jesus tells us to do. Tells them, tells us to to warn them about their state before God. They might, they might could be saved, but they are denying it by their life. And so the church, through removal of membership, says, You are in great danger of hearing, I never knew you. Depart from me. Because your life is not one of discipleship. Jesus' disciples follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a disciple of Jesus. And it is sinful of the church to tell anybody who is not following Jesus that they are right with God. That's hateful to tell somebody that they are right with God when they are in danger of hell. And why? Because we're a little afraid? Church discipline is the medicine that Jesus prescribes to bring wayward disciples home. The aim of it is spiritual restoration. That, That picture of the lamb on his shoulders coming home Restoration, repentance, rejoicing. The goal is that the the, the prodigal son would return and that there would be a party. We stand ready to forgive because we've been forgiven in this way. And we lovingly give the medicine of church discipline to sick sheep. My kids, as kids do, get sick a lot. And it just cycles through everybody. There's one child in particular I hate when he gets sick because he just will not take medicine. And it's Owen. I'll just confess. It's Owen. Uh, don't tell him I said that, all right? <laughs> but, but, you know, I'll get the Tylenol out if his temperature's up at 103, 104. And I'm like, buddy, I know you hate this, but I have to give you Tylenol. And to get Owen to take Tylenol, it takes Chelsea and I sometimes. Like, One of us is holding his mouth open. The other one's like laying across him, pinning him down. And he's, ah! And if you walked by my window and looked in and saw what was going on in my house, you would think, I better call child services. These parents are cruel. But if you investigated a little further, you would recognize what we were doing was for the good of our child. We didn't want to leave him sick. We wanted him to get better. So we were giving him medicine. That is what church discipline, what spiritual rescue is all about. It's supposed to be medicine that is aimed at healing a body that is sick with sin. We do it because it's loving. Because Jesus has commanded us to. And we do it hoping that even on the other end of excommunication, of removing somebody from membership, that restoration would be possible. I mean, it happened in 1 Corinthians 5, guy sleeping with his stepmother. Paul says, remove the evil person from among you. They remove him and then he's writing 2 Corinthians and he's telling them, hey, that guy that you put out of membership, he is repentant. Welcome him back in. This works because God works and his way is best. We always long for restoration. And then we have this this funny, not funny, but this, this part from Peter. Peter comes with a question. It's like, say we go through this process, Jesus, and, you know, different levels, step one, somebody repents, or maybe it's after they've been removed from membership. How many times should we forgive somebody that goes through this deal? And he says, like, seven? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. You see that in verses 21 and 22. And Jesus' point is not to say, count down from 70 times seven. Right, all right, now I'm all the way down to, to, to 20 and to 15, 12. Three more times, I don't have to forgive anymore. No, Jesus' point is to say, you are to forgive without limit. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. Because his grace has taught us to be big forgivers. His grace is greater than all our sins. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The power of Jesus' blood is good for each and every sin you have ever or Ill or will ever commit. He forgives us. And so we look at anyone who comes repentantly and we forgive. We forgive. That's what we want. We restore. We want unrepentant disciples and false disciples to become true disciples, to become faithful disciples. But we must do this because Jesus says to Now I'm all out of order, but it's okay. Uh, You don't know, well now you do know it, I guess. Confessed. Um, Earlier we were talking about false fruits and trees, and in Sunday school this morning, we talked about how tragically apparent disciples are not always true disciples. And we use the example of Judas, who walked with Jesus, looked like he would, by all intents and purposes, be a disciple of Jesus but was not. Likewise, Jesus gives us that parable of different seeds that grow up. Some are choked out by the cares of the world. Eventually, there's good soil. The point of of sharing all that with you is that we we as a church have been tasked with the difficult duty of making wise Christ-honoring judgments about who we welcome into membership, who we remove from membership, and who we allow to remain in membership. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we will give an account to God for who we receive into membership, who we remove from membership, and who remains in our membership as a church. God will call us to account. I hope that our response will be that we answered, that we can answer by saying, we we obeyed your word to the best of our ability." We know we didn't, probably didn't do it perfect, but we aimed to. Which brings us to our, our last portion, which will be pretty quick. Why don't churches practice church discipline? Why, why don't churches do what we have outlined here in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and Titus 3? And, and the first reason is, is, I think, the primary one. I also want to mention, um, church discipline seems weird in our culture, but historically, it's weird that we don't practice it. Even even in other countries, like it's weird that we don't practice it here. But, but the first reason churches don't do this, that I've listed, is ignorance. They just don't know. They just haven't been taught it. It's never been around, and so we just, just don't know, and so we don't practice it. And part of the reason churches don't know is because pastors don't teach it, because it's unpopular, as you can imagine. And they're afraid, well, if you teach on that, the people will all leave. And you won't have a church. So there's a fear. There's an ignorance and then it's coupled with a fear. Another reason churches don't, don't practice it, not only the fear of their ministers, but the fear of their congregants. Afraid of what others will think. Afraid their friends won't come back to church. Afraid of being mischaracterized or slandered as cruel or self-righteous. But friends, our job is not to fear man. But to fear God. Our job is not to please our friends, but to please God. Our goal is not to get everything we can in this life and to look for the approval of people. Our goal is to take up our cross, die to ourselves, die to our reputation, die to all else because we are following Christ. That is the call of a Christian. Third reason churches don't practice church discipline, pride. We think that we know better than God how to address unrepentant sin. We think that we're more kind than he is. And so uh, we come up with all kinds of ways to avoid removing someone from fellowship. Oh, you know, I know we haven't, haven't seen him in 10 years, but, and, and, and he's dead, but we don't want to remove him from membership. We'll, we'll create a, a list over here we can put them on. Jesus doesn't give us a list option. He gives us a command. We don't know better than God. He is more loving than you or I ever will be or could ever hope to be. God is smarter than you or I. His way is better than our way. It is foolish to look at something in Scripture that God commands you to do and to say, I'll do it halfway. And the half that I don't do your way, well, I'm going to do it my way. That's sin. It's disobedience. Humility does not tell God how to be gracious. It listens and obeys with fear and trembling. Church, my hope is that we would be a church who is committed to Christ's glory above all else. That we would be committed to, in our ministry to one another and to the community, being a display of God's glory. So that anybody who was numbered among us, we could point to and say, do you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus? Do you want to know what a Christian looks like? Look at Janet's life. Go live like her. Look at Sherry's life. Go live like her and you will find that you are following Jesus. We need to be able to do that with all of our members. Because that's what we're saying when we welcome someone into membership and when we keep people in membership is that that person is like Jesus, is a disciple of Jesus. Pray that we would be committed to practicing church discipline so that we would not bear false witness and so that we would be faithful to what God has told us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you that when, when you save us, you make us new. We thank you that you forgive us when we fail and when we falter. We thank you that you teach us and we'll be growing in the faith for our whole lives. We'll never learn all there is to know about you. But we trust as we stumble and carry one another down this down life's road that you will be faithful that you'll be faithful to keep us with you keep us with jesus pray that christ would be utmost in our affections we ask that you would help us to rest in him we thank you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light thank you that He died for our sins. Thank you that he is raised. We thank you that our future is not a hole in the ground, but a new heavens and a new earth. Thank you that our future when our faith in Christ is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is our heart's desire. And to this end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.